Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. My name is Tracy Alexander, and I'm from Forensic Response UK. Welcome to the new podcast, which is part of our Smoking Gun series. I'm doing a short series of interviews, talking to colleagues that I've known for many years about various aspects of forensic investigation, about their specialisms, their experiences, and how we've worked together to solve crimes and hopefully aid families in very, very difficult circumstances. Today, we've got Professor Dr. Fiona Wilcox, His Majesty's Senior Coroner for Inner West London. Good evening. We don't often see each other in these rather quiet settings, but uh, thanks for joining me. Could you start by telling everybody who you are? Good evening. I'm Fiona Wilcox. I'm the Senior Coroner for Inner West London. Fantastic. Um, And I've had the pleasure and privilege of working with you on lots of incidents in the past, but um, perhaps some of the listeners won't know what a coroner does. Could we start there? Just tell everybody what the role of a coroner is. Well, I cover the geographic area of Inner West London, which is Westminster, K&C, Merton and Wandsworth. And when I am informed of a body laying within my jurisdiction, and there is reason to suspect that the cause of death was violent, unnatural, cause of death unknown, or occurred whilst that person was in custody or at the hands of the police, then I must, as soon as practicable, open an investigation into the death. Presumably then, if a a death is violent, potentially the police are involved, so you're part of the police investigation? Yes and no. The body comes under my jurisdiction and then 
using powers vested in me, the body is recovered from the scene, usually to the mortuary, and then I order the required examination of the body. Usually, if it's a suspicious death, there'll be a forensic examination. And in order to do that and facilitate it properly, I will liaise with a senior investigating officer, and then the forensic pathologist will be appointed. So the body would then be examined. I would open an inquest. And if it's a suspicious death, the crime, the police are going to continue to investigate. I would then pause my investigation to allow the police to carry out their investigation. Of course, under the statutory duties in which they're required to act. So you and I have worked together um, with me being a crime scene manager, and that's usually one death at a time. But clearly, on some occasions, in a mass fatality incident, there are several deceased for us to deal with. Um, and I think if you could set the scene uh, for everybody, I try to convey to people that whatever my role is, mortuary coordinator, crime scene manager, I'm answerable to you. And obviously, the senior investigating officer has a key part to play, but the coroner's role is the most senior, isn't it? It's the, it's the oldest judicial position. It's the most senior in terms of the UK legislative structure. Coroners have been around for an awful long time. Coroners have been around from at least the 1100s. There are records of the Westminster coroner retained within Westminster Abbey that go back to 1165. And coroners have always been death investigators. We started working for the Crown, which is why we're coroners, because in some circumstances, the implement that led to the death or those involved with the death, the value of that property or the, the, the implement that led to the death itself might become forfeit to the crown. So that's how we started. Obviously, things have changed an awful lot over the years, but we retain primacy in death investigation and the actions of the police in relation to, the, to how the body is treated, where the body goes, how the body is examined. Um, the purpose of that examination in establishing who was the person who has died and how, when and where the death came about. All of those matters come under the jurisdiction of the coroner. The police obviously have their own statutory duties to investigate any criminal aspects of the death, but they run alongside those duties of the coroner. Everything to do with the body itself all the legal authority is vested with the coroner. Obviously, well, I say obviously, but obviously not everybody knows this, that the police have powers under the Police Criminal Evidence Act to secure any materials and exhibits that would assist criminal investigation. But again, this runs alongside rather than instead of the coroner. And I think it's fair to say that many of these investigations, whether it's looking at who the deceased person or persons are or how they came to their death, that requires, occasionally it requires some forensic expertise. Very often it requires forensic expertise. The first questions that we need to know is who is the person who has died? Sometimes that can be blindingly obvious, but at other times it isn't at all. 
and that can require immediate forensic expertise. Examination of the teeth, examination of DNA, those sorts of matters, fingerprints. But the next question is, is the, one of the fundamental questions we have to answer in order to help understand how that person came to die is the medical cause of death. Again, that may seem blindingly obvious, a knife stuck through the chest, caught on CCTV with the six eyewitnesses, or it might not be obvious at all if you have found a body alone in an insecure place. And the cause of death can be really varied. It might be natural, it might be accidental, it might be because of some inflicted injury or third party involvement. And all of this will require expert examination of the body starting usually with pathological examination of the body, which can take various forms. You can start with x-rays and scans and then external examination, then internal examination of the body. It may require toxicology to be taken. It may require histology to be taken. It may involve other experts if the remains are disrupted or burnt or of great age such as forensic anthropologists or even forensic archaeologists. So forensic science is an absolute fundamental. It's one of the bedrocks in which I depend in order to investigate the death. Then we move on to other matters. The last time you and I worked together in an operational sense was Grenfell Tower, I think. We've collaborated on other um, projects since, but that was clearly huge in terms of the numbers of people that died and their loved ones. And we were treating that as a, as a mass fatality, a disaster victim identification um, process. But you were still having to make up, I say make up in the best possible way, you were having to invent and adapt some of the existing rules and protocols that we generally follow in order to fit the, the circumstances to make sure that the families were, were first. I found it challenging, but I was hugely grateful that, that you'd had experience of those kinds of things before. Could you touch a little on some of those on the hoof decision-making processes? Well, obviously the scale of the incident and the disastrous nature of it. The fire itself, the devastation that wrought upon the deceased, but also upon the environment in which the deceased remains needed to be collected and returned to the mortuary in order for them to be identified and examined. So there were challenges at every phase. The role of the coroner mass fatalities incident is to chair the Mass Fatalities Coordination Group. And this group is essentially a group of experts who meet regularly to update all aspects of the case, the number of the deceased, the sort of environmental challenges, the types of expertise that's going to be required in order to, to investigate the deaths properly. Other things like communications, finances, how to get access, all of these things need to be considered on a mass fatalities coordination group. And the coroner sits there as the chair because, as I intimated earlier, all the powers in relation to the recovery of the body, where the body is taken and how the body is examined is vested with the coroner. So the coroner sits there, listens to the information, the evidence and the updates and tries to make the best decisions in order to have a coordinated response. In Grenville Tower, the environmental hazards were 
obvious when I was first on scene, which was early afternoon of that fateful day, the tower was still absolutely ablaze. And I worked very closely with experts from the police to assist at every aspect of this, securing the scene, body recovery, bringing remains back to the mortuary, identification, forensic examination, and then release of the remains as soon as that could possibly be affected back to their loved ones. And we used established processes in which we'd all been trained, but of course we had to adapt these processes to the hot situation. And I mean that both ways, hot because it was hot, because the effect of the fire on the deceased and the pressure we were all under to achieve some some calm for the bereaved to at least know that their loved one had been identified and found, but also the situation and all of this rested on good communications between the team, having the right experts available and then communicating with everyone who had a proper interest in the deaths and most importantly, the bereaved. I think um, that the, the, the public outreach meetings that you had were hugely helpful, I, I hope, to the to the bereaved, but also from the forensic process, because people were willing to talk to you to tell you about their loved ones when they still didn't know if maybe could they by any hope be still in a hospital somewhere. But I remember you telling me what very early one morning that the evening before you'd had a meeting where somebody had said he was still looking for his aunt who had bangles on her arm, lots and lots of them. And it, it just, I had an image in my mind straight away. I've seen a scan like that. I know that there is somebody that that fits that. It's just all of those things fitting together with the science as well, isn't it? In order to, to get those people some sort of resolution to tell them, um, sadly, there is no hope left, but at least they know as soon as we can possibly do it. Absolutely. And all of these pieces of information, these vital pieces of information, that are collected from the family to get every detail about their loved one so that we can try and identify them amongst all the various remains that we sadly had to collect and bring back to the mortuary at Horsery Road. So information from the family, a chance meeting like that, a chance comment then allowed us to identify that lady the very next day. And it was really good and it really, I hope, helped that family but it all rests, and I say this repeatedly, on communication, open and honest communication that's two-way, that's respectful, where you listen to people and are listened to. And that's the only thing that can work in something like this. I think it's fair to say that Grenfell wasn't the first major incident that you'd been uh, in control of. You do seem to be quite often in the right place at the right time or running the area where um, all of the excitement happens. So uh, we had crossed paths before that major incident, but would you mind just running over you know, one or two of the other little things that you may have had to, to take charge of in the past? I was also the coroner for the Westminster Bridge incident and Compared to Grenville, that may now appear to be relatively minor, but believe me, at the time it was not. It was the first terrorist incident in the UK since 7-7. Many people were 
injured. It was in the middle of central London, in the middle of the day, and the devastation wrought over what was such a short space of time when the driver drove down the road, running people over, then leapt out and and killed the police officer. seemed disproportionate to around the 90 seconds that it took. And again, there was a huge amount of pressure on the services to identify the deceased, to determine how they died and release them back to their loved ones. I'd learned a lot from the experience of other coroners from Penny Schofield, um, the Sussex coroner dealing with the aircraft incidents that she dealt with, with the New Zealand coroner, with the awful appalling incidents that he had dealt with, Judge McLean, who's now sadly died. I gave some advice in the background for the Manchester Arena incident and rather more for London Bridge. And I also have been involved in advising and assisting on international incidents. It's the international work that uh, I've been trying to inveigle your your assistance over recent months, uh, and we've managed to put some training programs together to, with hope, help our uh, colleagues in the National Policing Unit of Ukraine. That uh, that input that you did for us when we had some of their officers together uh, to try and share some of our forensic expertise, I thought that went really well, and they definitely want you back. Um, as you know, I'm we're planning a trip. Um, I'm sure you've got holiday to take, and Ukraine's lovely at this time of year, if a bit on the chilly side. Um, and I know you'd be willing to do it. How did you feel um, that that went down? What do you think their needs are as they progress their war crimes investigations and mass grave uh, exhumations and? examinations? I felt it went well. Obviously, I was delivering over the internet through an interpreter, but I could still feel when people were listening and when they weren't listening in the room. I would hope that I could bring to them my experience of being an independent investigator, the importance of leadership, structure, consistency, having proper forensic protocols in place, how to recover evidence, how to retain it, and how to present that evidence in a way that will hopefully satisfy other courts in the future if perpetrators of some of these awful events are ever brought to justice. And hope I can pass my experience that I've gained um, I, I don't know about being the right person in the right place, if I would say the wrong person in the wrong place, sadly, because of the way the geography works for me. But that is experience that we can all build on if you can just pass on one grain of information that someone can hold, that they can then think about in their own context, and their own incidents. So it's one lesson and one thing they don't have to think about. They can then react to the dynamic situation that they will find themselves in, build on we, what we've done, learn more lessons, reflect that back, and hopefully together as an international community, we can improve all the time what we do in relation to the management of mass fatalities incidents. Over the course of the uh, short interview series, I'll be talking to some of the people that uh, you 
know, and I know you respect them also with their particular areas of forensic expertise and how I'm hoping we can all pull of our expertise together and our experiences and then share it with not just in Ukraine, but uh, right across the piece. People are, are really struggling with some basic investigative principles because the circumstances therein are so challenging. So I know we're all going to do our best, but hopefully over this series of interviews, we'll be able to see where those bits of specialism will kick in. Are there any popular misconceptions about the role of the coroner? There are plenty about uh, forensic investigators, and I blame the television because I know the people on Silent Witness are brilliant. I wish I was that thin. I wish I looked that good in a white suit. Um, but I genuinely can't uh, go to the crime scene, do the post-mortem, sleep with the senior investigating officer, comfort the victim. And I can't do all of it in an hour. Um, but I think the coroner quite often doesn't get much of a mention in some of those shows. Or when they do, um, they seem to be doing all of the, the same roles as well. So how do you think it's, um, it's slightly misportrayed compared to the reality? Well, it's, it is quite difficult. Again, we, we have the TV. I don't generally interview my own witnesses. I do occasionally visit the scene, though. But I'm not the pathologist. I don't cut, cut the body up, though I will, because of my background, sometimes go down to the post-mortem examination room if the pathologist has something interesting that they want to demonstrate to me. But most people seem to think we're sort of glorified pathologists when in fact we are investigative judges, which is slightly different because after I've run my investigation and as long as death remains violent, unnatural, cause of death unknown or in detention or at the hands of the police, I then will sit in court in a court hearing known as an inquest where I will call and examine the evidence and either with or without the help of a jury, then record my conclusions as to who was the person who has died, how, when and where the death came about, the particulars to register the cause of death and the medical cause of death. So that's what I am. I'm a judge with a special role of investigation. You're quite rare these days, sadly, in that you have a dual qualification. Could you just uh, tell everyone briefly how you came to be a coroner, what that career path was? It's honestly quite corny. I'm a doctor. I trained to be a GP in the East End of London. And as part of my GP training, I was advised to go and observe the Limehouse coroner. And I saw a couple of inquests, I saw a couple of post-mortems, decided I definitely couldn't have been a pathologist because my sense of smell was too good. But everything got better when I met with the coroner in her room and shared a glass of whiskey with her. And I filed that away as one of the most interesting experiences of my life. The investigative style, the involvement of the family and the fact that it always matters, no matter how contentious the death and contentious the death is, because a person has died. I filed that away, continued on with my GP career. And when I started to become slightly fidgety, I remembered it. I then retrained in the law, leaving a position of being a senior partner of my own practice, retrained in the law to become a barrister. and. I was a barrister, I did some criminal law, I did some professional negligence and then um, 
I, at the same time, was lucky enough to get some positions as assistant coroners. I had three in London and one in Kent, and then drew that all together and into a full-time appointment at Inner West London, where I've been a senior coroner now for nearly 13 years. So I've been a coroner one way or another for coming up 20 years, and about half my career was purely as a doctor. The other half, there's been an awful lot of law. So I'm still trying to decide what I am now. Am I a doctor, or am I a lawyer, or am I a bit of both? Well, I know I speak on behalf of many of my colleagues that we're glad that you had uh, both sides of the experience because it's been hugely beneficial to us taking your wise counsel over the years. So thank you very much, Professor Dr. Fiona Wilcox. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today and tune in next time for, I'm sure, somebody that you will know and love also on the next episode of our podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story? Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime, subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love and it costs just 3 dollars per month.